Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Retail Simulation Lab. If you're new here, then we are discussing the theory of constraints, supply chains, retail, and simulation technology to explore ways to do better. That's our goal. My name is Jasper Zielenberg. Normally, Roel Smelt would be hosting this session. Roel is the Managing Director of Retailization. But since he's on holiday, I have the dubious honor of hosting this particular session. I'm the founder of Retailization, and I founded the company in 2010 after working for about 15 years in the fashion and sporting goods industry. I'm curious by nature, and I'm always looking for things to be done in a better way, especially when better means simpler and involves people working together on a common goal, using new learnings, new technology, and new insights to improve all the time. Joining me in today's talk, as well as a fixed podcast panelist, is Dr. Alan Barnard. And Alan, maybe you can just introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Alan Barnard. I'm co-founder of the Goldberg Research Labs. And in our research lab, we study why good people make and often repeat bad decisions. And we've developed a whole range of decision support apps, including some advanced supply chain and retail digital twins. And... Uh, I've always just been very, very interested in the consumer goods side. There's a lot of complexity. I started off in being executives at companies that make fast-moving consumer goods. And over the past decades or so that I've, I've worked with many manufacturers, distributors, and retailers that are trying to, as Jasper said, uh, find innovative, simpler ways of doing better and sometimes much better, getting shortages down and surpluses down and in return getting profitability and cash flows up. Very good. Thanks, Alan. Today's talk is about sustainability, really. Uh, it's about ESG. It's about increasing regulations. Uh, it says in the announcement about in Europe, but of course, the whole world is facing uh, a push to become more uh, sustainable. And what I'd like to discuss is how this push or how more regulations will impact the fashion industry particularly. Personally, I don't think that more regulations have ever helped any industry. The obvious reason for this increased control is that we need to contain and also reduce the negative impact of the fashion industry on our planet. But while I don't argue about the necessity of these regulations. I wonder if there isn't another way to break the obvious conflict between planet and profit or between ESG and making money. Uh, Alan, how do you see that? I think it's a great question that true innovation is normally solutions that no longer require trade-offs that we think we couldn't have avoided. Yeah. So you're right. So if as a company owner or retail business owner or executive, if I have to make a decision and the decision has an upside for the planet, but a downside for our profitability, that puts me in a conflict. Right. Right. In the same way that if I make a decision that has a huge upside on my profit, but a downside on the planet, and I'm a responsible human being, that has family and actually care about the future, it also puts me in a conflict. Rather than finding a better compromise, both sides giving up, okay, I'm giving up a little bit of profit and in return, I'm doing a little bit more damage uh, than what 
maybe I'd be comfortable with. We want to look for innovations that don't require trade-offs. So if we can find, for example, a situation where we either overestimated the impact on profit and that caused us to compromise the planet, if we find a way of challenging that assumption, we thought it would be very profitable to do it, right? To, for example, uh, I know we've talked about overproduction, right? Yeah. Sort of pushing a lot of inventory into the retail. Now, why would somebody do that? Because they think that's the best way of protecting sales. So in their mind, producing a lot of stuff has a huge upside on sales revenue and profitability. Yeah. They know that this is causing a lot of excess products to be consumed, to be manufactured, that creates a lot of waste. So they know intuitively that there's a downside for the environment, right? That decision only makes sense if there really is an increased revenue and profitability. But what if they realize that actually the cost of doing it is not just the cost on the environment, it actually causes my profitability and real sales revenues to go down. Suddenly there's no more conflict. Then what I'm doing for profit is completely in line with planet and vice versa. So that would be the direction that I would always recommend to say, whenever you see a conflict in reality, the conflict is very seldom because there's a fundamentally different goal, right? It's often because there's at least one bad assumption. Right. And the bad assumption is there's either a big positive of doing it or there's no real negative of doing it. Right. And in this case, I think right. you are maybe overestimating the profit or the return. Yes. And I think in, in the case of our industry, an underestimation of the cost has been at the root of this conflict uh, all the time uh, because the costs are not really visible, right? Shipping stuff from yeah. uh, very far away, having a carbon footprint that is not uh, acknowledged in the retail selling price. And one of the things uh, we should probably be doing is making the true cost at least transparent as I say this, then I think maybe these regulations are a way to make the cost transparent, but it's an indirect way, right? It might not be felt. Yeah. So I have a feeling that people will compromise to comply with the ESG rules and at the same time try and make as much profit as I can, which of course is flawed thinking because you are sustaining the conflict. And I think it goes for both sides, right? So when the government is announcing new regulations, they tend to feel that they have to intervene because somebody's making a decision that's negatively impacting either the planet or society, right? But what if they're wrong? What if that decision that they are trying to avoid also has a big negative impact on, on them as government? So you can imagine if you add a lot of regulations that make it so difficult to do business, so costly to do business, firstly, there will be less tax that will be paid to government, right? Because your profit margins are lower. But if you go overboard, it can even get to the extent where the business says, 
I no longer want to be in the EU. I'm going to move my headquarters outside because it's just become too costly to trade there. So I think from both sides, it should always be, we want to do what's best for the system. And what's best for the system is that all the stakeholders are winning or at least not losing. So when we take the EU regulations, for example, that just been released as a company, they should use it as an opportunity to say the government felt it was necessary or the EU felt it was necessary to introduce this because they think that we might be underestimating the total cost of the decisions that we've made hoping that this will change our mind, that we'll take decisions that are better aligned with the planet and with society than just on profits. In theory, of course, you can't disagree with that argument, but you know, the whole industry is not small and there are some very strong lobbyists and big companies. I think in total it's about two and a half trillion dollars annually. That is a, a significant chunk of the global economy. And at the same time, uh, we're not exactly the best kid in the classroom uh, because you talked about overproduction, 40%. Um, if you're looking at shortages in, in the same way, then we know that we have this bandwidth of production and consumption where only a very small part is actually effective. Producers produce, but they produce more than is consumed. Consumers right. don't actually consume what they buy. They buy and then waste. This has been ongoing, I think, almost since the Industrial Revolution and worse so when it came to fast fashion. We now have even ultra-fast fashion. Of course, we're going to talk about technology, but it's not only about technology. It is about having a common goal. It's about having a shared interest. That coupled with technology, how do you see that we can actually make a step change rather than more regulations that will only make the world more complex. What could be the path towards that? And I know that's a philosophical question. Yeah, so let's take the position. So if we owned a, a big distributor or a retailer mm -hmm. and these new regulations, it's now fact of life. It's been announced, right? So I would suggest two things. The first one will be to say, I'm sitting down with my team. I'm making sure that I really understand what these regulations are, what their goals are. And I'm going to see to what extent it's going to impact me. And normally, any form of regulation, it has a, a positive and a negative. Mm -hmm. Right? So I want to, first of all, see what is going to be the total impact of these regulations. Maybe initially I'm only seeing the negatives, but the more I start thinking about it, maybe there's also some positives. For example, a very simple one is, if it's really a regulation and I can show that my company is adhering to this regulation, it could give me a competitive advantage sure. over some importer that is not capable of following the regulation. So that would be my first one is to put together your not just your own team, but all your supply chain partners upstream, downstream from you to say, let's study it together. Let's see what the positive and negative impact is going to be on us. Then for all the negatives, is there some way that we can mitigate that? Some way where we can reduce the negative impact on us or even avoid it? What is it that we need to change to dramatically reduce the downside of this regulation? 
But as importantly would be, if there are positives, how can we fully capitalize on these positives to take it as an advantage? So I think that's one aspect that you could and should immediately do, get as many of your own team and stakeholders upstream and downstream, put together a workshop and really study the the regulations, make sure you understand what the purpose is, and then ask everybody to say, what do you think on procurement? How is this going to negatively and positively impact you, these regulations? Once you understand that, then to say, how do we mitigate the negatives and capitalize on the positive? I think that there's a second strategy that could also be relevant that says, now that we understand the goal and we consider ourselves as responsible citizens and responsible companies, what is it that I can do to help achieve that goal that might go even further than what the regulations have got? And again, what would be the positives and negatives of taking that extra step? And it's a combination of these that I think responsible companies, if they are not doing that already, should be doing that as the first two steps. Okay. Now, I think that behind here, you have... Uh these regulations and if these regulations are rigidly enforced it will also force this whole industry to be changed even if it doesn't change by itself you just mentioned yeah. something about talking to all the stakeholders and one of the things i've often struggled with in the industry is that there is no common goal you know the goal of a retailer with you know, hundreds of retail locations might not be the same as the goal of the brand or the supplier that supplies this retail chain. Obviously, if we're being penalized as a retailer on carbon footprint by importing, etc., it's even worse because if you're not vertical and you're buying from people far away, you simply start sourcing locally. Um, yeah. It's probably going to have more of a disruptive effect and isolating effect on uh, supply chains that will suddenly become a lot shorter. Is that what you see as well? Or is there another way that people are going to start collaborating again in a different way? Yeah, I think that if regulation is forcing us, for example, to have full transparency about where things are made, mm -hmm. how they're made, etc., and forces us to have visibility throughout that supply chain, Again, we could say, ah, you know, it's been, it's been hard in the past to get all of this, but since we have to do it now, how could we capitalize on it? And that same data could possibly show me where are the biggest delays taking place mm -hmm. in my supply chain? Where are the biggest wastes taking place? And we can use that with our supply chain partners to say, let's look at the total system because that's ultimately how we're going to be measured. I, I remember one of the first things I, I read, and that was confirmed by my own mentor, Dr. Eli Goldratt, was from Stephen Covey, mm -hmm. when he said that when you have a win-lose situation or lose-win situation, it normally is just an interim state. It's not a permanent state. It will always deteriorate towards lose-lose. <laughs> or win-win. Or it will gain the win-win. It will force those insights right. to become a win-win. And I think that's, that's kind of the way to think about it is that if it feels like the government has announced regulations mm. that 
makes the government win or some other stakeholder and not the company is to treat it not as a permanent state, but an interim state to say, how can this be a win-win for all of us? How, or at least how do we avoid making it a lose-lose? Yeah, it's interesting because the European Commission has already announced, of course, all these rules, and I won't list them, but one of the components is called EPR, or Extended Producer Responsibility. And it effectively shifts the full product's life cycle responsibility to the producer, including manufacturing, design, take-back, recycling, uh, final clearance of waste. I'm not sure how yeah. they will actually enforce that. But as I was reading through these rules, I was thinking maybe there should be even a more holistic approach and, and have an ECR, an extended consumer responsibility because if we are talking about a common goal and it is let's not waste this planet then we're all in it right i think it's a great idea to elevate it if you remember one of dr goldratt's favorite insights that he shared was wherever you are in the supply chain whether you're the first link mm. or the second last link you've only actually sold when the end consumer have bought. So the first link, if you can convince the next link to take product from you and pay for it, you actually haven't yet sold that because it's just inventory, yeah. right? And whatever is not consumed at the end will finally come back to you. If we just take the supply chain, excluding the consumer, right? Yeah. So how would it come back? Even if there was no way of the inventory actually being returned, it's a fact that whoever bought from you, if there was too much, then they're not going to buy as much in the future. Right. So now you've wasted all this capacity producing something that's not needed now. And then when you have the capacity, there's no orders because there's too much inventory in the system. So that's a way of saying that actually I should pay attention to make sure that I'm only producing what is being bought. Okay, there's two ways to do that. One of them is to know yeah. what you need to produce. So we'll have this crystal ball. And I think we are yeah. very far away from that. The other one is, of course, to buy what you sell or make what you sell, depending on what kind of supply chain you are. In the world that's becoming more and more complex, because I'm certainly hoping that these regulations are in, indeed an interim state and that we'll get to win-win. But in the meantime, it's just a lot more noise and it's a lot more complexity. How do you deal with that kind of complexity if you want to find out, am I going to do better or worse when I make changes uh, that include all these new rules? Because the business is complex enough. Right. In the past, we, we easily outsourced manufacturing and distribution to companies that were in low-wage regions, right? Uh, and we did that because the labor is lower. What we didn't do properly is to see about what's the total cost implication of that, of now having a supply chain that's maybe four to six months long, sometimes even longer. Yeah. And I think that's part of what, what COVID has done is to say, it's not just that there's a major risk for you to be that far away because your system can't react fast enough if there's quick changes on demand and supply. It's going to be this four to six months lag, right, which is very damaging. But it's actually very costly to have that. Yeah, yeah. The lowest total cost is to have your supply chain as short as possible. 
and to get rapid feedback about what's actually being bought by the end consumer. So I think there's definitely now a bigger realization that there's huge value in making things shorter. And it's not just because of risk mitigation. It's a fact that you're losing out on fast feedback. You mentioned an example on Henry Ford a long time ago. And I know that just for the audience out there, because I think it's a fantastic example. Yeah. In 1926, the total lead time from the iron ore mine until that ton of iron ore drove into a dealership as a Model T car was just 81 hours. That was it. It's incredible. And you think about it today, we've worked with some companies that own everything from the iron ore mine until the dealership, right? And today it's around six to nine months. Yeah. So that means that supply chain is not just carrying six to nine months worth of inventory, but it's the fact that it's so unresponsive. So when there's a real change in what the consumer are buying, Mm. it's going to take the first links in the supply chain six to nine months to find out that there's been a change. And that caused them to keep on pushing stuff into the system based on those long-term forecasts that was based on what we sold before, that is ultimately going to be waste, either because it's never needed or even best case scenario, it might just not be needed now. But in the meantime, I've wasted production capacity. I've wasted storage capacity. I've wasted capital. I've wasted transportation capacity. All of these things are wasted. And I've added risk, especially in our industry. I was reading something about fast fashion the other day, and I think the definition of fast fashion is stuff that goes out of fashion very quickly. Yeah. And I think what you said about the producers, imagine in the past, I was a producer. I said, listen, I outsource my manufacturing. I'm turning a blind eye to how they do it, right? All I care about is saving dollars, right? So if they give me a good price, I just buy from them. And uh, authority said, no you're a responsible company, it's your job to go and audit them and make sure that they are not using kids to make this stuff and make sure that they are following proper environmental safety standards, etc. right? Yeah, yeah. But it, now it's also downstream is to say, the fact that you could convince the next league to buy the stuff from you, yeah. typically by offering a big discount, that's not where your responsibility ends. Your responsibility ends once we know how much was actually consumed And then there was this waste. What now happens to that? What is the best way from all key stakeholders' perspectives to deal with this waste that has been been produced? And then everybody is now looking at spreadsheets. Everybody is trying to figure out how am I going to make my P&L work? Um, In in which way can new technology, and I'm talking about digital twin technology that you and I are talking about almost every day, um, how can that help in this instance? Is there a way to incorporate the potentially negative effects on the PL into that? Yeah. yeah, I think that the challenge if you're using Excel or some other optimization engines, these uh, all use averages, right? So when you look at demand, it will ask you what your forecasted demand for the month. Yeah. But during the month, there could be substantial fluctuations. And within a week, there could be substantial fluctuations. And even within a day, there could be substantial fluctuations. So these static kind of optimization engines, including Excel, 
can't fully consider all that variability and uncertainty and complexity. With digital twins, you can essentially build an accurate digital version of your, not just your part of the supply chain, but the full supply chain, so that you can see how a decision made in one link affects upstream and downstream, both positively and negatively. And I think that's the requirement of if you want to follow a systems approach or holistic approach in managing your business, mm -hmm. you need the ability to quantify the system-wide impact of your decisions. Yeah, what if? You can't just make decisions based on the impact on a department. We know that. You have to make the decision on the company level, right? But now we're saying you can't, you shouldn't just be making it on a company level. You should make it on the supply chain level. And how do we do that? As we can build digital twins of the full supply chain and allow everybody to see how their decision in their local area will impact upstream and downstream. And a good decision is one that benefits all, right? That doesn't require anybody to have to live with any significant pain. And if they have, then you'd have to give them some kind of subsidy or incentive to ensure that they make a good decision. Yeah, and I think it's almost impossible to capture the outcome of such a complex web yeah. of regulation, but also of many moving parts on where do I make my stuff, who's going to transport it. Um, it there are just so many different inputs that it is impossible. I'll give a simple example for a company, right? Mm. So imagine you are a manufacturer or distributor, you're selling to a retailer. Yeah. How do you incentivize your sales teams, right? You pay them a percentage of the sales that they generate in a month. What if we change that and say, we don't pay you a percentage of the gross sales, mm -hmm. but we pay you a percentage a... of the net sales. I'm sure if I was a salesperson, now I'm going to start checking much more with my client to say, listen, how much do you really need? Yeah, that will help not to overproduce. Uh, so exactly. effectively, when you're talking about two entities, manufacturing or brand, and the retailer on the other hand, it's about selling profits rather than selling products. Right. I think that's going to be quite a major move. And I think many people won't even be able to make that transition because it's a very different way of working. Yeah. There's a kind of a link with theory of constraints that might be easily overlooked. You can imagine if one day transportation becomes a constraint. You have a third-party logistics company and suddenly the demand is more than the capacity that they have. Yes. So immediately, in the past, when you gave them an order for 1,000 products, they would gladly accept the order and move that 1,000 products to wherever they need to. Yeah. Right? But now they have a capacity constraint. So guess what will happen if you give them an order for 1,000? They're going to say, listen, we have a problem here. We can't do the thousand. How much do you really need to move? Absolutely necessary. And you might say, listen, only 500. Yeah. So if it's okay. If you move 500 this week and 500 next week, we'll be fine. So when a constraint moves, we tend to break the rules, right? To live with that new limitation that has just happened. And the problem is, if the constraint is resolved, we go back to the old rules. We don't actually learn from experience. You should ask the question, 
the rule that got us out of the crisis. Why don't we use that rule all the time? And when you have new regulations that says we are holding you responsible for the waste, it should be part of your job to check with your downstream links, right? How much do you really need? And to work with your upstream means to say, what's the minimum that you can actually produce here? It's almost in the case when the regulations came out to banks that says, listen, you can't just give out loans, right? Yeah. And, and incentivize your people on the number of loans that they've given out. You are responsible to check with the consumer, can they actually pay back this loan? Yeah, we learned that the hard way. And of course, if we had done that earlier, we would have avoided the crisis, That's right? right? Yeah, yeah. Now, th that rule was already in banking. If there is a crisis, if I'm not so sure about whether you're going to pay me back, mm. and there's a real damage for the system if you don't pay me back, I'm going to be much more diligent to check, Jasper, I'm giving you this loan, but can you actually pay me back the money? I know that there's data privacy, but I need to know all the other stuff that you're paying already. And what is your income, et cetera? It puts more burden on me. But overall, it protects everybody at the end. You talked about why effectively, I'm saying it a little different, but why do people fall back into old behavior? And I think that's maybe a philosophical question. Why do people do what they do when they know it's not good for them? Uh, yeah, that's an sure. I think that when we started this podcast series, we committed that we want to provide insights. Yes different ways of thinking about things that might be sometimes counterintuitive, but we also want to leave the audience with real actionable information. And sometimes the actual information is going to be pretty obvious, like the one that I'm going to share now, but maybe you're not doing that or not doing enough of that is to say, there's been a lot of new regulations announced. Your first job as a responsible business owner, executive manager is to sit down with your team study those regulations, make sure you understand what they are trying to achieve and check what the positives and negatives will be on your part of the system and see how you can mitigate the negatives and capitalize on the positives. Then have the courage to expand it. Go and involve those upstream from you and those downstream say, we've just done this workshop, we've gone through it, but it'll be great if we can work on you because we all have biases and blind spots. Maybe there's something that you picked up that we completely missed out on. So please share with us your positives and negatives and see how we can help each other mitigate the negative, fully capitalize on the positive. So that I think is a scope of work that can be done and should be done pretty quickly. The other part would be to say, now that I really understand what the regulations is trying to achieve as a short or medium or even long-term objective, how else can we contribute yeah. that maybe go further than the regulations, but still will have a bigger upside for us and our partners than the downside risk? So those are hopefully two pieces of actionable information that they can go ahead. The last thing I want to say is this maybe hinting at what we want to talk about next in our next podcast. So something that I'm very passionate and curious about is the cost of complexity. There was this famous story when uh, 
Mark Barker was appointed as the new CEO to Nike back in 2006. Yep. He phoned up Steve Jobs and said, landed my dream job. Do you have any advice? And Steve Jobs said to him very simply, he said, Nike makes some of the most amazing products in the world, products that people lust after, but they also make a, a bunch of crap. Just stop making the crap stuff. And looking at that quote, it basically means that Steve Jobs had this profound insight on two levels. One is he fully understood the cost of complexity, yeah. where more is actually less in the end for a whole bunch of yeah. reasons, right? There's an exponential growth in complexity as you add more stuff, but there's also an assumption about what it will do to your growth. That's a requirement. I keep on having to add more and more products and styles and colors in order to sustain the growth. The other part of it is this profound confidence that less is more. Yeah. And there's a point that we can discuss in the next podcast, some fascinating research about if you present a consumer with three options or 30 options, which one of these two choices will more likely get them to buy one thing? Yeah, depends on the type of product, right. but I, I'll go for the three. Then it's easier to do. That, that's the whole thing is we yeah. get overwhelmed by complexity. We become so worried and so confused that we end up not buying at all. And there's great examples like in and out Burger. They're one of the most profitable restaurant chains in the world. Yeah. And when you look at their menu, it's so few options. Yeah. Right? So that, that, I think, would be a great discussion for the next podcast, is to dive a little bit deeper into, on the one side, the cost of complexity. Yeah. And the other side is the gain of simplicity. Everybody wants simplicity. We are being bombarded with complexity. These rules are just yet more input in something that is essentially yeah. quite a simple industry in concept. And I think that the relevance to the, the regulations is the same, right? At initial look, it might look wild. This is going to be so complex to to properly administer and adhere to, etc. Is there a way of dramatically reducing that? And sometimes that means, do I really understand what they're trying to achieve? And how can I report it in a way that says, I am actually helping to achieve this goal? Good for the next one. Alan, thanks very yes. much. I look forward to the next podcast. And I want to thank the audience for listening. And hopefully we'll see you next time. Until next time. Thanks.